1: In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 10, verse 5 through chapter 12.
0: Well, we're Christians, so you have some fleshly feeling. What do you do? You stuff it down. You hide it. You put on that nice facade, right? And you stuff it. Where are you putting it? In the storerooms. Does that make it go away? Now, it creates some problems, doesn't it? it fills the psychiatric billings, right? God will deal with that, and, uh, and He does. And, but the, the guide is not Freud or some other writer, or L. Ron Hubbard or anybody else. <laughs> it is, it is the Holy Scripture, the owner's manual. But that's a whole other study. If you're interested in that, I do. I think I've done this before, but I unabashedly will tell you that the best materials I've ever seen are the ones that my wife has spent 12 years researching in the way of Agape and also Be Transformed, two tape series that she gives for women's seminars that has just changed lives all over the world because she's taken the architecture of the temple with great insight, practically, in terms of what that means in terms of Christian walk. You notice I use my wife an example, not me. You know me well enough to know that I'm no example. We'll move on. Verse three, quickly, <laughs> and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove the with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Wow, we could spend the whole evening on that verse. With righteousness he shall judge the poor. Boy, don't we wish we could judge with righteousness. You know why we can't? You know, if you're, I don't know if there's any lawyers here, but we speak glibly of a court of equity, but there is no such thing. There are, of course, criminal laws, and they have punishments for crimes. That's straightforward. But there's also civil injury and penalties and what have you. And wouldn't we love to right those wrongs in equity? We can't. Equity doesn't really exist in the legal sense. Why? Because we don't know the thoughts of the heart. We can't infer that. The closest we come in practical terms are what's called money damages, but that's often a far cry from the real injuries when someone's negligence has lost somebody else's use of limbs or eyesight or whatever. Money damages is a poor uh, remedy, no matter what the numbers are. And there's a real dilemma in law: is real equity. Why can't we do it? For lots of reasons. By the way, you know that uh, the Bible says that only God knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. How many knew that? How many of you know why that's in the Bible? It's to keep the personnel department out of the act. So I just thought I would throw that out. Okay. Not many of you in large corporations, I can tell that. Okay. In righteousness he shall judge the poor and reprove with equity, only God can. For the meek of the earth he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. You know, it's interesting how often that phrase occurs in the Scripture. I encourage you sometime to take a concordance and just track it down. The rod of his mouth. How often does it occur in the Scripture? And it's interesting that that is all through the Scripture. Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. In the interest of time, we won't do, do, go back to chapter 1 again. Second Thessalonians 2, 8 and elsewhere. What destroys the Antichrist? The brightness of his coming and the rod of his mouth. What comes out of his mouth? A two-edged sword. I'm always amused by these Renaissance painters and stuff that try to, or Clarence Larkin, would whatever try to sketch Jesus Christ with a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. That isn't intended to be a graphical idiom. It's an idiom from the scripture. It's a conceptual idiom, not a visual idiom. The rod of his mouth, the two-edged sword is what? The word of God, you betcha. Two-edged sword comes out of uh, Hebrews 4.12, but again, and also Revelation 1.16. It's interesting how these idioms are consistently used. You see it in the Psalms, you see it in Isaiah, you see it in Revelation 1, you see it in Paul's letter, Second 2 Thessalonians 2.8 and so forth. What's fascinating to me about that, don't miss the obvious that you've got one author. The guy that wrote the Psalms, the guy that wrote Revelation, the guy that wrote uh, 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 the Thessalonians. Yes, there were different penmen who really engineered the text, the Holy Spirit. And I don't mean just conceptually, I mean the use of language, use of phrase. And, of course, it goes even much deeper than that. With the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. It's interesting, I'm think, I always think of the Garden of Gethsemane, how Peter draws his sword. He's going to defend the Lord, right? The Lord just smiles could have had legions of angels. One angel slaughtered 185,000 Syrians after dinner one night. You don't mess with angels, right? And Christ can call legions at his disposal. He's like, Here's Peter drawing a sword, right? What does Jesus do? He heals the servant that had his ear cut off, right? Why? To save Peter's life. What would have been the aftermath of that? Peter would have been arrested and so forth. So yes it was probably I'm not saying he didn't have compassion for the servant But he's, the, the compassion he had was on Peter But anyway I'm getting off the subject again That's happened to me once before Verse 5 And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins And the faithfulness the girdle of his waist Now verse 6 on it really reaches out on the horizon Because it's millennial Verse 6 on Refers to the curse That's lifted Genesis chapter 3 Adam falls Right and God pronounces a curse, right? Verse 6 on, many commentators try to spiritualize it, and you don't need to. Take it for what it says. Verse 6 The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Do you want to spiritualize that? Allegorize it? Don't need to. It makes sense as it is. It just means that, hey, something's changed. What's changed? The curse is gone. What curse? The curse of sin. The curse that God had established in response to Adam's fall. And the curse goes far beyond just man. It's the universe. Isaiah will say, and Revelation will echo, Behold, I see a new heavens and a new earth. What's being redeemed? More than you and I. The earth. Heaven too. Satan had access to that. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And the little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed. And the young one shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. It would really be humorous. If it wasn't so pathetic. If you read how some of the commentators try to twist this around to make some kind of allegorical model. Hey, it's it, it, it sliced so many ways. To make it clear, it's just very simple. It's the curse lifted. Genesis 3.15, right? enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. When did the seed of the serpent bruise the heel of the seed of the woman? Calvary. Mm -hmm. When did the seed of the woman crush the head of the seed of the serpent? In effect, at Calvary. You crush his head, what are you crushing? His skull. Where was the cross? Interesting. Idiomatic, symbolic, don't misunderstand me, and yet determinative. The battle is determined. The, the outcome of the battle is determined. But that's again, let's get back here to verse 8. The nursing child shall play in the hole of the asp, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy all in my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse. Who's that? Jesus Christ. Right on. Who shall stand for an ensign of the peoples. To him shall the nation seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Ensigns were the rallying point. Ensigns are not necessarily a flag, by the way. It was a standard bearer, but that's neither here nor there. What kind of an ensign are we talking about? What is the ensign of Jesus Christ? What is his symbol? You can say the lion of the tribe of Judah, and that's fair. But there's another one that he alludes to in John chapter 3. Don't peek. Do you remember what it was? A strange ensign. There we go. Get a, you get a gold star. A brazen serpent. Jesus says, as Moses raised the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. He's making allusion to Numbers chapter 21, verse 9, where, of course, there was the plague, Moses instructed, take a brass serpent, put it on a pole. Anyone that looked up to the pole was cured of the pestilence of these vipers that were biting everybody. Brass serpent. That brass serpent, by the way, hangs around. That brazen serpent that Moses did is around in the days of Isaiah. It becomes a problem because people started to worship it. Hezekiah destroys it. See, we make fetishes of things whether it's a shroud of turn or a splinter from Noah's Ark or you name it we tend not to look to it with some mature perspective we start kneeling before it in foolishness so it's interesting, Hezekiah had to destroy it but it doesn't get destroyed because it ends up the idea the concept goes to Alexandria it becomes the symbol of Aesculapius and thus the symbol of medicine you ever see the serpent that's a symbol of medicine where does it come from it goes back, in effect, all the way back to Numbers 21. But let me tell you a funny story. The guy that designed the symbol for the U.S. Army Medical Corps decided to get symmetry. He had two snakes, right? You see, the proper symbol for Asclepius is a single snake. The double snake is Hermes, the goddess of commerce. And I always think it's amusing when doctors have the two snakes because it betrays where their heart really is. <laughs> little cultural background there that can get you in trouble with your doctor I'll forego any doctor jokes at this point you know what the definition of a minor operation is that's an operation on somebody else right yeah okay anyway we got down to verse 10 to verse 10 I think we covered the main things out of verse 10 the ensign of the peoples the ensigns what you gathered troops with and ensign is what you also use to gather fugitives, to, to free them and so forth. It had a number of interesting implements, and as you study all of those, typically in, in Jeremiah and elsewhere, ensigns, you'll discover that uh, Jesus fits all of those, so that's fine. But now we get to one of the most interesting verses for you and I. The reason I love Isaiah so much isn't just that he's so messianic and that's exciting. He also is so timely. You cannot find a more timely passage in the Scripture than verse 11 and following. We're in the book of Isaiah, written, what, seven centuries, eight centuries, whatever, before the birth of Christ. That's a way back, gang. (laughs) Read verse 11 carefully. The Lord says to Isaiah, And it shall come to pass in that day, that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the coastlands of the sea. The second time, not the third, fourth, fifth, the second time God is going to recover his people. Well, terrific. When was the first time? Babylon, you betcha. Jeremiah predicted, and they did indeed, uh, were slaves in Babylon for 70 years to the very day. Jeremiah said 70 years. It's actually 69 years and two days, but if you take 360-day years, it works to the day. That's interesting. So they're slaves in Babylon for 70 years. What happened then? Cyrus conquered Babylon. Cyrus reads a letter that we're going to come to in Isaiah 44 and 45. He's so impressed finding this letter and mentioning him by name, he frees the Jews to go home. So the Lord brings back a remnant from captivity back to the land, like he promised. That's the first return, the return from Babylon, known idiomatically in the scripture and among scholars as the exile. That's when Israel was in exile, 70 years in Babylon, slaves to Babylon. Great. They go back, they restore themselves, ultimately the Romans take charge, obviously in 70 AD the Romans destroy the city of Jerusalem and the Jews are scattered throughout the world for roughly 1800 plus years. The diaspora, the idiom of the wandering Jew, the homeless, pathetic, persecuted Jew. And the climax, in a sense, in the Holocaust in Europe, the conscience of the world, to some extent. Maybe it was, some people suggest that the Holocaust was the essential prerequisite to giving them their state, so to speak. Well, whatever. May 14th of 1948, God establishes the nation Israel. And I might mention, at the risk of getting a little technical... Is that in Ezekiel, there's a strange passage which predicts 430 years of judgment on the nation Israel, 70 of which we can account for because the 70 years of Babylon subtracted from the 430 leaves you 360 years not accounted for. And scholars try to fit it. And it doesn't fit any particular point in history unless you look at it, uh, Leviticus chapter 26, where four times God says, if you don't obey me the first time, I'll multiply your punishments by seven. Say, gee, I'll take the 360 years, multiply by seven, and get 2,520 years. And that's about the time of the diaspora from Babylon on, if you will. Well, problems with that because I don't think that you use approximate and God in the same sentence. If it fits, and it may not, it was going to fit precisely. But no one had ever bothered to recognize the very thing that Sir Robert Anderson is so famous for in un- unraveling Daniel chapter 9 is that God deals in 360 day years for lots of reasons. He did in Genesis and he did all through the scripture 360 day years we have reason to believe that in 701 B.C. the earth went from a 360 day orbit to 365 and a quarter days that we, to reconcile the solar to the sidereal calendars as we do today but that's technicality, the main point is God seems to deal in 360 day years, fine, question is if you take 2,520 years, 7 times 360 if you treat those as 360 day years it's 907,200 whatever the number of days the question is what is that in our calendar on 365 and a quarter days that we're used to, it turns out it's 2,483 years, nine months, and 21 days. You say, Chuck, boy, that's exciting. What do I do with that? <laughs> well, then you got another problem. You have to ask yourself when do you start counting, and to do that properly, you discover something else. We speak glibly of the 70 years captivity of Babylon, but it turns out that there are three sieges of Nebuchadnezzar. The first siege of Nebuchadnezzar was in 606 B.C., where he lays siege to Jerusalem and succeeds in the siege, making Jerusalem a vassal province of Babylon. He sets up a vassal king, because his dad has died, he's got to go home and take over the empire. So he goes to Nebuchadnezzar the general, comes back as Nebuchadnezzar the king, with a vassal king and starts into Jerusalem. That starts, the servitude of the nation, the servitude of the nation starts from the first siege of Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah and Ezekiel and others are preaching the people yield to Nebuchadnezzar, he's God's instrument. The false prophets tell the king and the people, no, we're the chosen people, God's going to deliver us. Jeremiah says, no, he's not, he's judging you for 70 years. They consider Jeremiah a traitor, throw him in prison as a traitor. But anyway, the net of it all... Is that they do rebel, contrary to what Jeremiah said. Jeremiah says, if you rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, God is going to destroy the city of Jerusalem. You're slaves, yes, but at least you have your city, etc. If you rebel, it's going to be destroyed. They don't listen, they rebel. Nebuchadnezzar lays a second siege in Jerusalem, replaces the first king with another king, Zedekiah. And Zedekiah, same thing. Jeremiah says, hey, don't rebel. Ezekiel, said, who's writing from Babylon, said he's a slave, don't rebel. Zedekiah rebels. And uh, by this time, this is Nebuchadnezzar's had a belly full of the whole operation, lays siege, and levels the place, destroys Jerusalem, takes them all slaves. That starts a period called the desolations of Jerusalem. There are two periods of time. The servitude of the nation, which starts from the first siege of Nebuchadnezzar, and their slaves to Babylon for 70 years to the very day. The desolations of Jerusalem start with a third siege of Nebuchadnezzar, 19 years later. And it also lasts for 70 years by some strange bureaucratic mix-ups. There's, there's a major delay from the time Cyrus authorized the basics till our Xerxes longimum finally does issue the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. It's also 70 years to the day. The servitude of the nation is 70 years. The desolations of Jerusalem are 70 years. And because they're both 70 years, most commentators, most scholars assume they're synonyms. They're not. They're not coterminous. You say, okay, Chuck, well, what do I do with this 2,483 years, 9 months, and 21 days? If you count from the termination of the servitude of the nation, Israel, you come to May 14th of 1948, when David Ben-Gurion, using Ezekiel as his authority, named the Jewish homeland, the new Jewish homeland Israel. May 14th of 1948. What a coincidence that the nation is established... 2,483 years, 9 months, and 21 days after the terminus of the servitude of the nation. Well, that could be coincidental. The rabbis, of course, have a phrase that coincidence is not a kosher word. The third siege of Nebuchadnezzar, which starts the desolations of Jerusalem, you take your 70 years' desolation, count from that period, 2,483 years, 9 months, and 21 days, And you come to June 7th of 1967, when as a result of the Six-Day War, Israel regains control for the first time since Christ's crucifixion. The control of the old city. Interesting, interesting precision. But without getting into all those technicalities, verse 11, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. And by the way, it's not just from Shinar. Look where it's from. Who shall be left? From Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros? Pathras was upper Egypt, upper river. And from Cush, Ethiopia. But Ethiopia in a broader sense than the province we know. And from Elam. Read that, Persia. And from Shinar. Read that, Iraq or southern Iraq or Babylon. And from Hamath and from the coastlands of the sea, wherever that is. Is that the U.S., or what you name it? The point is, from all over the world. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. You notice God is blind to any lost ten tribes. He's got the dispersed of Judah and he's got the outcasts of Israel lumped together. The twelve tribes. There are no lost tribes. That's nonsense. The envy of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. Judah is being used in the idiom for the southern kingdom, and Ephraim is an idiom for the northern kingdom. They're no longer going to hassle each other, as they have since the days that Solomon died. But the second time, when is the second time? Started on May 14th of 1948. And by the way, as you and I pick up Time Magazine or Newsweek or the Daily Paper or watch CNN, what are we seeing? Absorption problems in Israel because of all the Russian Jews that are moving into Israel. And we read about the airlifts of the Ethiopian Jews being moved. Hey, that not that Cush? Right? And so on. We're watching it happen. The third, fourth time? No, the second time. There's no third or fourth time. This is it, gang. God is moving, as Isaiah said he would. It's happening before our very eyes. And just, don't, don't let the, the familiarity with it mask the amazement you should see. Knowing the scripture, God is moving. He, God means what he says and says what he means. Amos 3.7 says, God does nothing but that which he reveals to his servants, the prophets. He now reveals what he's doing. He doesn't do anything he hasn't revealed. He's doing it. It's happening. Go there and see. Israel's got all kinds of problems. Because all these Russians are trained mathematicians, engineers. They need farmers and people that can fix automobiles and you know, practical people. All these Russians are brilliant theoreticians. And they got some real problems. And you see these guys with three or four PhDs on the street corners uh, making falafels or something, trying to figure out some way to make a living. Because Israel's got problems, you know, trying to create jobs for all these people. Highly talented people, but not practical. And it's, you know, some very interesting things as you visit Israel and get to know the people as they try to help these people coming in who are, you know... Uh, sort of amusingly impractical, many of them. And there's some of those. There's some. See, in the early days of Israel, the people came. there were farmers and peasants and people of the land. And well, they got problems now because these people come and they have a whole different idea. You know, uh, they want a job as a theoretical physicist. Well, that's great. How many theoretical physicists does a you know a nation need? You know. But in any case, uh, the point is, uh, it's all happening, and it's interesting to watch them uh, adjust. And uh, they are. You watch the neighbors come over and try to help them, and it's uh, it, there's an interesting... Uh, it, but the point is, God is doing exactly what Isaiah said in Isaiah 11.11. 11, the second time. And this is the second time, gang. Worldwide. Regathering. And of course, Ezekiel in chapters 35, 36, and 37 deal with that. Point out that they are, going to, God is going to regather them. And Ezekiel 36, God says, I'm doing it for my reputation's sake, not yours. Let's just pause for a minute. And turn to Ezekiel 36. Don't misunderstand. I'm not trying to sound pro-Israel, pro-Israel in the sense that Israel can do no wrong. Hardly. That's not the point. God says in Ezekiel chapter 36, pick it up about... Verse 17, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. Their way is before me as the uncleanness of a defiled woman. And wherefore I poured my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land and for their idols by which they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries according to their way and according to their doings. I judged them. And when they entered into the nations to which they went, they profaned my holy name. And when they said unto them, These are the people of the Lord and are gone forth of his land. Verse 21. But I had pity for my holy namesake. ...which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they went. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes... O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which ye have profaned among the nations to which ye went, and I will sure, I will sanctify my great name, which is profaned among the nations, which ye have profaned in the midst of them, and I and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, uh, the Lord saith the Lord God, and I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes, for I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all countries, and will bring you into your own land. What's God saying? Not because you deserve it. Because my reputation's on the line. I told the heathen I was going to do it, so I better do it. My honor's on the line, not yours. You don't deserve it. Is Israel being regathered and blessed by God because they deserve it? No. Because God said He would, and what He what He says He's going to do, He does, and He is. We watch what's happening, and of course Ezekiel describes how they're brought together, but not with the spirit, not in belief. There is an event that will shock them into orthodoxy, so to speak. That's an invasion by the Soviet Union described in Ezekiel 38 and 39, in which five, six of the field forces are wiped out, in which the weapons left over provide the energy needs of Israel for seven years, in which they spend seven months before going in the battlefield to clean it up, and then after seven months, they send professionals in to clean it up, to bury the bones east of the Jordan downwind, and if anybody goes through the valley and sees a bone they missed, he doesn't touch it, they mark the location that the professionals come and deal with it. That was Ezekiel 2,500 years ago.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry.